Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. Uh, and before we get into today's episode, Ben, we, we had um, had some interesting, well, an interesting reaction to our um, Tulpamancer episode last week. And so we got a bit of TQM Tulpa project news, but I'll save that to the end. We've got some very weird Sherlock thing. And uh, just to give you a little bit of a tease, Sherlock, through his Tulpamancer, has almost set us a mystery, which is quite weird. And we'll get into more detail later, but it is very strange. It's a good excuse to get the violin out again. Yeah, exactly. We haven't had it out this year. <laughs> yeah, any excuse to get the world's smallest violin. <laughs> <laughs> the world's most believable violin. Yeah. Well, I haven't got a good segue to that. But it's a tough one to segue. It is a tough one to segue. This one has nothing to do with tulpas. Um, let me just ask you, because this is what... I might as well just define this at the beginning. Do you know what dicyanin is? Uh, I don't, know. If you've been on TikTok recently, some people have been talking about this. This is kind of where I got the idea for this episode from. But... If you don't know, dicyanin is a kind of a blue, bluey green dye. And if you believe what you read, it has been made difficult to possess since World War II. Right. And there was a gentleman, a British gentleman called Walter J. Kilner, nothing to do with the jars, I believe, who was a British doctor. And he did a lot of work with dicyanin, putting it between two screens because he believed it could de- it could sensitize your eyes for a very specific reason now some of the things that i'm about to tell you are i'm go- they're not necessarily true and we'll come back to it at the end but if you were to do just a cursory search you will find out that this is highly toxic the patent for it expired in 1946 and it's illegal to manufacture it it's a liquid is it it is a liquid right not not many of those things are true, but that is what you would be led to believe. Okay, so if you did a just a a cursory Google, that's probably what you'd be fed. It, yes, exactly. Right. Now we're going to start with Walter Kilner, and we're going to end up in Vietnam. Okay. <laughs> and where we start is nowhere near where we end. Trust me on this. Okay. So the very first time Kilner wrote about dicyanin. It was kind of, it was in a, a journal, but it's, um, you know what it was like in 1908, which is when he published this. Things were a little rambly. And he wrote this thing about, um, uh, well, his quote is, Some time ago I noticed I did not require to rack out a pair of opera glasses at the, sa- at the same extent when looked at an object four feet away as had been necessary for the same object eight feet away pre- pre- previous to experimenting with a Dysonian screen. So his basic, the, he based the rest of his career around dicyanin. He became a dicyanin expert. So he didn't invent dicyanin, but no. he invented this idea of using it with a screen in order for him, I guess he's saying, to help his vision. Well, that's, that's where it started. Right. But it gets stranger. So he was born in 1847. He was a proper British medical doctor. And he worked at St. Thomas's Hospital in London, mm. and he was in charge of electrotherapy, which gives you a bit of a clue as to what's something that's going to come up later. Right. And he wrote a load of papers, not just about dicyanin, but all sorts of different things, some of them very mainstream medical, not all of them, as you heard from that one. And he published a book, which is called The Human Atmosphere. 
good title. It is a good title. It feel, It's a bit weird, though. When you say, oh, you've got a good human atmosphere, it's, it's like, really? Have I got B.O.? <laughs> What's that about? It Was it the book that influenced Russ Abbott to release his single? Human atmosphere. <laughs> well, if he had decided to go about experimenting with people's auras, because that's what this is about, then maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> so he kind of starts by saying, hardly one person in 10,000... He's got such a weird way of writing. Hardly one person in 10,000 is aware that he or she is surrounded by haze, intimately connected with the body, whether asleep or awake, whether hot or cold, which, although invisible under ordinary circumstances, may be seen when conditions are favourable. This aura, this this haze, is he giving it some spiritual connection or is it more of a, a, a functional, you know, like heat well, coming off the body or whatever? It's funny you should ask that because we're just about to get into that with N-rays. But no, he, he didn't really believe... He, to be honest, in this book, he doesn't put forward anything other than an observational set and he believes well this next bit will tell you i think what he believes so he says the discovery of a screen capable of making the aura visible was by no means accidental after reading about the actions of n rays you have to bear with me on this upon phosphorescent sulfide of calcium we were for some time experimenting on the mechanical force of several emanations from the body so he is thinking auras are some kind of radiation now at this time x-rays have just been developed in fact they were discovered eight years before they weren't developed they were discovered yeah and there's a french scientist by the name of rene blondlot i'm sure that's how you say blondlot i don't know sounds like a bond villain blondlot i can't imagine the french say it that way i can say blondlot blondlot maybe he stumbled across a brand new form of radiation and he called them n-rays after where he lived in a town called Nancy. And he proved quite correctly that X-rays were actually waves. And that sort of built his reputation. Right. But then he fired X-rays through a quartz prism, which had already been shown not to reflect such radiation. The problem is, out of the corner of his eye, Blonlow noticed that the electrical spark in the detector got brighter, like X-rays had actually been deflected into it except that couldn't possibly have been. We, you know, The science had already proved that. So he leapt to a bit of a conclusion that he had discovered something entirely different, N-rays. Right. It was a leap that would prove to be the end of his reputation because he became obsessed with figuring out their health benefits and he instructed people not to look at them except through peripheral vision on a phosphorus screen. So basically he's saying, the if I fire... Um, uh, uh, x-rays at you your body will emit n-rays and but you can't look at them you can only see them with the peripheral vision right so um other people then began to speculate that n-rays actually emitted from the human body and some of them said oh we should generate them and point them at your brain like genuinely that's what they thought wow. even though they don't know what they do <laughs> exactly wow but it took a gentleman called Robert W. Wood to finally prove there was no such thing. I won't go into... Basically, he was a little bit horrible to Blondlow. He basically tricked him into um, disproving his own theory by um, inserting a lead screen 
into an experiment where Blonlow didn't see it. Right. And when Blonlow said he could see something, it was clear he couldn't because this guy had put the um, screen right. in. And and writing about this escapade, he Blonlow describes Wood as a very disagreeable fellow. <laughs> so so was he? Um, he wasn't claiming Blondlow was uh, tricking people, but just no, delusional. He was or... well. He got caught up in his own hype, right? Because the discovery of X rays was so big, and he had had some reputation building from showing what they could and couldn't do. They thought, "Oh, there's these new things," but this this informs really where um, the human atmosphere is coming from. So. This book is really, look, here is another discovery. But he, at this point, he is, he is assuming that N-rays are a thing. So he's already right. sort of got the wrong assumption. Fruit, fruit of the poison tree, as they say in legal terms. That's right. Yeah. And, and he goes through the book, he sort of describes in detail like how, to, how he's experimenting with different kind of methods to observe what is the aura. And uh, he says, there was a hitch in our experiments, and in the early part of 1908, we thought that certain dyes might assist us. The reason that he wants a dye is to sort of limit, sort of like like having a pair of sunglasses, really. You right. limit the rays that go through. He describes, he says, the light must not be too bright. The requisite amount must be determined at each observation and depends on whether a screen is being used or not. Certainly the best arrangement is obtained when the observer is standing with his back to a darkened window while the patient faces it. Eventually, he settled on dysinin as the perfect dye to use, sandwiched, as I say, between plate glasses. Because it seems like he's believing he can see these auras. This dye, you know, in combination with glass, however he does it, allows you to see these auras. But you, you were describing a behind the dark window with the patient in front of you. He just leapt to a conclusion that there was some medical benefit. What, what was he going to do with them, I guess, is my question. He doesn't know. I think he's, he's just exploring. He's just exploring. And, and he is feeling like there is something in this discovery because he sort of he gets excited when he says about the aura. So he says the auras of young boys are faint. This prevents children from being very good subjects for observations. Conversely, observing the aura of an adult woman, a characteristic alteration is found, and he describes how um, a woman, uh, her aura is very different to a male, and he goes into the detail. In fact, he, he goes to such detail that um, he start, he's, he's built a little um, catalogue, and uh, some of this is, is recorded in the book. I've kind of got a page of it here, so he records like the name of the um, patient, their sex, their age, and their condition. So some people, um, he looks at epileptic people. Um, <laughs> I like this. This is a sign of the times. Married daughter, otherwise healthy. Don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> Apart from the marriage. Is that this one's also particularly good. Granddaughter, dull. Um, <laughs> Does he go into detail about what these auras look like? I'm trying to picture them. In my mind, I'm thinking some kind of blurry, cloudy thing going on, or is that just my assumption? No, you're right. So it is like a, a you know how some people say it, an auric field. Now, I want to be very careful about this because I am not saying that there are people who don't have the ability to see an energy coming off humans, and they might describe that as an auric field, right? right. Some people describe that they can heal 
via an auric field. That is not really what this guy is talking about. He's talking about something that it's a it's um, an actual either particle or wave is 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 his assumption that can be observed in a medical condition in a medical way. Right. And he believes that it shows maybe the health of the person. And I know that sounds a little bit like what people who observe auras would say, right? But this is very this is very different. This is not um, this is not, I suppose, uh, an etheric yeah. field. This is something that he he hopes to prove to medical science. This is a thing, and along the way, he got many, 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 many people to pose for him completely naked in front of a screen, where he squinted at them through <laughs> lenses made of dicyanin, right. and then wrote this book about it. <laughs> now, the poor guy, he is eventually proved wrong a lot of scientists get you know he was very eager for other scientists to follow what he was describing because he wanted this recognition but when you when you're a scientist and you discover something you obviously tell people about your uh, empirical um, apparatus and journey and observation methods and all of that and he did that and of course part of the method was you can't look at it and lots of scientists would like, well, hang on, you want us to look at this out of the corner of our eye? Right. It's like, yeah, otherwise it doesn't exist. Now, there was another scientist who famously said that, because um, it is true, right, if you look in the night sky and you want to see very faint stars, if you, if you sometimes you can see a star, not out of the corner of your eye, but it's more in your peripheral vision than your main vision, right? That is a fact. That's just the way our eyes work. Right. And in fact, one scientist got caught out because he claimed that you could see the moons of Saturn with a naked eye from Earth by looking at the corner of your eye. Anyway, but scientists didn't really take to that. And in fact, they couldn't replicate any of his studies. Right. There's some people... So I wanted to firmly address the the case that was made on the... Uh, in, in a few TikTok posts that has been going around um, not just the internet, but actually in quite reputable places that sign in. So he, the, the claim is that he did see auras, but it was covered up and that sign in was made illegal because not only could you see into the astral plane, but you could see other dark and weird things. We'll come on to that in a moment. Okay, so it sounds like... The originator of all this didn't kind of make that kind of demonic spiritual oh, connection. Oh no, 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 no! But he did but say then it kind of led to belief around that. Or that, that yes, that's right. That, right. Yeah. So he he claimed that he could see something that you couldn't see with the human eye, yeah. and that's where the people's imagination ran wild. But fact checking this, dicyanin is not on the list of chemicals that are illegal or controlled okay. in the USA. In fact, you can order it if you want. Um, it's not of much use because it's uh, used for astronomy and spectrochemical research, so it's still used for um, you know observation things. But uh, you can order it if you want. Uh, there's a company here that I found that you can actually order it from, and it isn't particularly toxic. Um, it just says don't swallow it. Sorry, you said it was used in astronomy. So as a visual, so there is some visual element to it? Is that I, how it's used? I believe it's used um, when you're constructing 
um, observation things. I think I think it's very very useful in cutting out certain um, wavelengths for telescopes and electro telescopes. Right. Okay. That's interesting. But um, this you know, this so onto something maybe. Well, yes, but like so just the many, wrong thing. Lots of dyes are. You probably at school used um, a, a blue dye that we only call blue dye, but you used it to stain things you remember that using it to stain cells in um plants and things like that no. um it, it's like it, it's that comes oh right yeah 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 yeah. i do it's in the same sort of uh it's in that field of you can use it to stain things you can use it to shield um electro uh, like electronic sensors for light things like that but there is nothing weird about it it's just it's a useful device it just helps the human eye spot things that it wouldn't without the dye sounds like it, it well it cuts yes it sort of cuts down light into places you don't want but right. allows other wavelengths through got you but the point is that in that um in that same article it also the where it's de- debunking the fact that dye is illegal um, it also points out there's a review in the BMJ from 1912 who rejected Kilner's study and um, basically comes out right and said, Dysine in dye does not allow a human to see, a person to see human auras. And that's in the British Medical Journal, right? It is in the British Medical Journal okay. in 1912. But. Well, that's quite early as well to kind of have that. Yeah, okay. We will leave Dysine in very briefly. We'll come back to it because that, this is sort of where I want to get to. But. You might be thinking, well, what was he seeing? Because he was obviously seeing something. Something, and I found this really interesting article. It was from the the October two thousand and four issue of Cognitive Neuropsychology, and it's called "My Favorite Aunt Is Purple: Why Some People See Auras Around Their Loved Ones." <laughs> and this is uh, so when people see colors around people or uh, words cause colour to be seen, it's called uh, synesthesia. You've probably heard of that. Synesthesia, sounds, yeah. Yeah, so um, Dr Jamie Ward, who was author of the study, says a popular notion is that some people have a magical ability to detect the hidden emotions of others by seeing a colourful aura or an energy field they give off. Our study suggests a different interpretation. These colours do not reflect hidden energies being given off by people, rather that they are created entirely in the brain of the beholder. I can understand. So it's possible this guy might have experienced synesthesia because one of the things this article points out, and of course I had not really thought about it this way, but if you do have it, you probably don't know you have it because it's just normal for you. Right. It's a bit like colour blindness. I guess it's more obvious with colour blindness, but it sounds like a mild thing. It's funny, as you're talking, it's making me think... um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, my partner showed me an app where you can look at the world in terms of colour and lighting, how a dog sees it. And it's, oh, ama- yeah. it's amazing. I mean, we were looking at, like, out of the, in the kitchen and out the kitchen window, and it was a really dark sky, and it was really bright purple. And But, yeah, the kitchen was really dull and dark. It was... It, I don't know what it's called, but if you come across it, check it out. It's really fascinating. But that always amazes me that, you know, you've got this animal that perceives its environment in terms of colour and light in a completely different way to we do. It's weird. Well, not completely different, but substantially different, let's say. Did you try looking at his toys, your dog's toys, through that? Uh, well, a little bit, and then, yeah, I, I think yellows are quite good from my memory. Uh, it came about because um, 
we we had two things on randomly that were just on the TV that he seems to love. And one of them was, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. And it wasn't for the kind of, you know, the intrigue and the arguments and the whatever, the trials of the campmates. I think he liked the, we thought he liked the greenery. And the other thing he likes watching is snooker. (laughs) But having said that, green is actually a really difficult colour for dogs to see. So... I, it, it's not like it's really bright and thing, so I, I don't know why. Maybe my dog's a bit weird. Maybe he's been at the dice. What's it called? Dice in. Dice him. Dice dice him. But yeah, no, it just made me think about that. But um, so yeah, I'm fascinated by that. I love that idea that you know, if it's a subtle difference, you as a human would have no idea that you weren't viewing things in the right way. It, it's all those big philosophical discussions of, you know, what does green look like? Because green to a dog looks completely different to us. Yeah, well, that's true. But, I mean, interestingly, the one of the headlines from this study was um, they were testing names uh, on this very particular subject who who did now realise that she, she had this condition. And the the name James made her see pink, Thomas black, and Hannah blue, wow. and so something in the brain when they heard that yes. combination of letters. Yes, is that because they she associated that colour? No, with it? is it more random than that? No, it's completely involuntary. Wow, it's completely involuntary, and it's there's a there's a thought. So you know how there's this idea that people couldn't see blue until. Um, in you know modern times, right? Well, that's not entirely true. It's just the fact that people didn't have a name for it because so right. sometimes it was called light green and stuff like that. Um, Same with orange, isn't it? Orange was a word that came later, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so yeah, I'd heard something about um, you know birds who are orange being called red something, and it's like, well, it's because the word orange didn't exist at yeah. the time they were named. So if you want to explain to someone from those times what blue is, you have to actually show some blue. Right. You can't actually do it with language. So if you can't actually so show someone your synesthesia, you can't explain that you've got synesthesia apart right. from, you know, I see colours when I see, when I hear the word James, but you might just sort of go... Well, I won't tell anyone because I know uh, that's just how people are, right? That's just... That's fascinating. Yeah. So, so do we know how how extreme that is? So, if, you know, if the word James means pink to someone, uh, is it almost like lighting changes or... Uh, it's fascinating. Well, they, they just... So this woman would see that person surrounded by a pink glow. Oh, literally. It's like yeah. the aura. Okay. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. But other people might see it as pink flashes. So some people, if there was nothing, if you were hearing it as a recorded sound, you might see pink flashes in front of the eye. It's different for different people, I believe. That's fascinating. Yeah. Anyway, leaving that for a moment, why Why you say, what has this got to do with the paranormal apart from the auric thing? Well, actually because there's a claim that dicynin was used in experimental night vision goggles given to soldiers in Vietnam. So old-fashioned night vision goggles it's true use a red spectrum rather than the green one we're familiar with today so you know when you look through mm. the goggles uh you see everything is green yeah there's a good reason for that is funnily enough when you were talking about your dog the reason why it's easier for us as humans to process different shades of green is because we evolved to look for vegetation that's good to eat 
Right. So, but red, we're not very good at processing, but we didn't really realise that when we first started building them. Right. And the claim is that the dye, dicyanin, was used in the manufacturing of these devices. And because it has some supernatural properties, it had some very unfortunate side effects. Specifically, seeing demons or demonic entities, monsters at least, depending on which side of, you know, the religious spectrum you come at. Yeah. Um, And that sounds pretty far-fetched. And also sounds pretty dangerous for a soldier in the field to be observing that. That would mess me yeah. your head, wouldn't it? Um, well, the US government claims it wasn't testing night vision in Vietnam, at least not using this technology. And so we would need to find a little bit more evidence. And then I found some first-hand evidence. So this is yeah. from... It's about two and a half minutes long. This is from a person whose father actually witnessed a very terrifying event. Uh, take a listen to this. So my father did three tours in the uh, Vietnam War. One of the projects that he was in charge of at the time was these uh, technology, this technology that they introduced into Vietnam that uh, almost brought the war to a standstill. Wow. And th- this technology was a uh, night vision goggle. But it's not night vision as we have it now, okay, Uh, because the night vision goggle was done in the red spectrum. So instead of seeing, when you look at a night vision goggles now, you see green. So the night vision goggles were introduced to helicopter uh, pilots and uh, gunnery people in Vietnam, and it was a disaster because the image was presented in red pixels, not green. And because of the te- technology being used at that time, it created very interesting effects that they could not deal with. So you had uh, some officers that were part of this um, cadre uh, or this cohort of other officers that were all uh, testing these new technologies for the military that had their troops always use these goggles. And those those units uh, became self-destructive. They uh, went down in a horrid situation. My father was extremely practical, didn't want to see him uh, himself get destroyed in any way, wanted to return and get out. So as soon as he saw what's going on with these goggles, he had his people take them off. And he actually got um, uh, praise from the military for the way that he dealt with all of this. But the effect was this. A gunner in a helicopter would have no problem using these goggles. And only everything is showing up as a a sort of a faint reddish image. And it was true night vision the way we have it now. And even a greater depth because you could also flip it and get an extra layer that was sort of yellowish that would be heat signatures as well. And they don't have those combined anymore in these goggles. Anyway, the goggles that were presented to the gunners, and my father tells the story of the very first time they're out with them. And they're flying along and he's in the front of the helicopter with the pilot. And all of a sudden, in a very peaceful area, not anything going on at all, the, the gunner in his, uh, on, the, on the starboard side of his helicopter starts firing wildly at their height, not at anything on the ground, but in an area that he was shooting at and basically causing other helicopters in their little flotilla to have to react. Mm-hmm. And, he, and my father goes on back to the, to the gunner basically demanding what the hell dude what are you shooting at <laughs> and the and the kid is just sweating 
profusely, just, and his eyes are just dilated beyond belief. And my dad thought he was dealing with another heroin addict, but this was before it had gotten really bad in, in Vietnam, and the kid was not exhibiting uh, those kind of symptoms. He was mm -hmm. reacting to what he had seen. Mm -hmm. And he's describing to my father that he was shooting at these basically flying demons mm -hmm. that were flying alongside the helicopter. And, and he knew they were coming to get him because they were gesturing at him and they could see him. And so he reacted and he started shooting his Bren gun, uh, you know, big 50 caliber slugs at these things, right? Mm -hmm. And they were flying along right next to the helicopter. So he's flying firing out directly from the helicopter and there are other helicopters in the vicinity so it caused all kinds of problems and this goes on repeatedly week after week after week every time they try and use these these night vision goggles at some point they encounter monsters true monsters wow wow there's so much to unpick there isn't there that's incredible i was i was really really skeptical about this this claim until I heard that interview, and that doesn't sound. So this was recorded a little while ago. This was this is a seven-year-old, eight-year-old um, video now, and this wasn't really the subject of the whole interview. It's quite a long interview, goes on over an hour, and it's quite a lot about um, military technologies. But this reference to these flying demons mm. and the red and that fits in with the Dysonian story. Well, there was a few things though that I I got from that. Firstly, good on his dad for saying for his people to just take them off and not use them. Yeah, because that's quite a bold move. I was really interested by that quote of you know you had the red image and then you had almost like another setting that you could lay down, which made things yellow. And he said the military don't use these dual settings. Anymore, I guess one reason could be the technology's advanced that they don't need it. But it does suggest in some way, if you take demons aside, and I'm sure we will explore that, it almost suggests that something in seeing it through that red or maybe the yellow or the combination almost has a hallucinatory effect on the brain from yeah. from overexposure. I guess that's the non-demonic version. It's, it's the non-paranormal, yeah. That's exactly where I was coming from. Like, um, in that situation, that phrase, seeing red, mm. it automatically, it's associated, that colour is associated with anxiety, panic, flight or fight. Anger. Anger. Mm. And, you know, in that, in that very stressful situation where you've got the life of yourself and your colleagues in your hands... Mm. Perhaps that is what happens. You hallucinate these things. But that's quite a complex hallucination. I get that. I, I get feeling edgy and feeling that, you know, it's interesting in that scenario because it sounded like, if I'm understanding that clip right, the gunner on the helicopter was shooting into the air around other helicopters rather than exactly. the ground. Exactly. Because if, he says they're flying alongside them. Yeah, so it's interesting. If you're hallucinating to a degree that this light is, I guess it depends how much effect it has on your brain, but you would almost assume it was some other aircraft or an enemy something, an enemy combatant. But to leap to almost this demonic creature is really interesting, isn't it? It, it absolutely is. And, you know, it, it made me think of things like the Foo Fighters. Yeah. And <laughs> Gremlins, all of those things right. in the sky... But also, 
Like, um, there are other accounts that say the same thing. And what is interesting is they all talk about these flying, demonic, monstrous things. They all do pretty much use the word demonic, though. Right. And it, fi- it, it actually spawned an independent film that um, is only half an hour long. But if you want to watch it, uh, it's co- you can find it on YouTube. It's very well produced. You'll find it on the channel called Oats studios as in what you put in porridge and it's called firebase and it is built around the the sort of well obviously it's a dramatized version but it's built around these very accounts wow i I, just so i'm clear there's no evidence that this was using the the chemical we were talking about earlier officially No, no no that is just the story that's we don't know either way so I guess if you're a believer in the conspiracy, you'd say that's a cover-up. They were using this special, you know, yes. liquid. Um, if you're a sceptic, you'd kind of go, no, there was something else going on here and it's just got pinned on to correct. the previous story. Correct, correct. So I, I, again, like you said, it's reminding me a bit like sleep paralysis and people seeing the same thing. There's something about that concept because... You know, if you've got numerous people who are using these goggles and technology who are, you know, becoming psychotic or hallucinating or both, to have them see the same thing is really strange, unless it's almost some mass hysteria that gets passed around within the military. I guess that's one explanation, but yeah. It is. And so I wanted to find out... If there were other accounts of this when people weren't wearing the glasses. Okay, that's good. Good move. And there are. Okay. I found this account by Brent Swanser, who I do like his writing. And the, he wrote a piece in uh, four years ago now, I keep remembering it's 2024, four years ago, about supernatural encounters by the military. And this one, again, is from the Vietnam War. So to remind everybody, Vietnam War is 55 to 75. And he says, A witness who claims to have been a US Army corporal during the war, uh, and in 1970 was second in command of a squad of soldiers operating in a thickly jungled remote area just south of the DMZ, the Demilitarized Zone. The witness claims that they'd been uh, they'd set up a bivouac in an area of steep hills and had then set out on a night patrol of the surrounding vicinity. They encountered what they took to be enemy activity and hunkered down to wait it out. During that time, they only got fleeting glimpses of something moving through the bush. When the activity died down, they continued through the valley and they were were in until they hit a sheer wall uh, that oddly looked as if someone had stacked enormous boulders in front of it. A cave entrance was visible, which looked to have been clearly carved into solid rock. It was very unlike anything they knew of enemy caves and they decided to get a closer look to investigate. As they approached, a fetid, putrid smell like rotting eggs and human decay began to pervade the area, which seemed to be bellowing out of the cave opening. So bad the stench was that several squad members reportedly fell physically ill. As dawn began to break, something very strange happened. The witness says, Just when we notice movement in front of the cave... Well, the only way I can describe these beings is that they looked like straight upright lizards. The scaly, shiny skin was very dark, almost black. Snake-like faces with forward-set eyes that were very large. They had arms and legs like a human, but with scaly skin. 
I didn't notice a tail, although they wore long one-piece dark robes alongside a dark cap-like covering on their heads. I never noticed if they had anything on their feet. He then goes on to describe... <laughs> you wouldn't be drawn to the feet, would No, you? no. <laughs> he then goes on to describe how the whole platoon opens fire on them. Nobody gives the order, he said, which is very unusual, and obviously right. you could get into a lot of trouble. But so panicked are they, they open fire and they destroy all the vegetation. But when the firing has ceased, the two beings have disappeared. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And, and so the witness... Again, it's back to that question, isn't it? To have a hallucination of one person is one thing. But, you know, when you've got a platoon or a group of people who are seeing what sounds like they're seeing the same thing or at least similar, that makes no sense. You know, unless somebody goes, do you see those lizard creatures? And then that creates a kind of chain reaction through (laughs) everyone. (laughs) Do you you see those tall, dark lizard creatures? (laughs) Who look demonic. Yes, we should fire at them. No, it doesn't... Have they got crocs on their feet? (laughs) (laughs) If there is nothing paranormal about it, how does that happen that everybody sees the same or a similar thing? It it blows my mind, that. It it is particularly strange, but it's also strange that... um, Well, I mean, it it is definitely subject for another episode of Encounters Through the Military, because there's lots... The Vietnam War is just one in this Brent Swanser article, but the, it, that encounter it, with the sort of the sky demons isn't the only one attributed to these red goggles. And the this encounter in, I say daylight, but natural light is not the only one with these beings. I mean, again, looking at it from a, a critical point of view, I guess from a psychological perspective, you would say it's an incredibly... Well, you know, a war zone is an incredibly stressful environment. A war zone in territory like Vietnam, where you've just got no familiarity with young, you know, the, the, the age of the soldiers was young and a lot of them were drafted rather than professional, you know, quote unquote. I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but you know no, what I mean? No, they, I know exactly they, what you mean they're yeah. not career. Um, yeah, military. They don't necessarily want to be there. Would cause a lot of stress, distress, and trauma. But it's back to this thing, isn't it, of seeing the same thing. Uh, what was going through my mind, Ben, was the other example that we heard, the one that was on the uh, the interview where he was shooting at the demons in the sky. Was there any description of those demons? Were they lizard people? Well, no, these are very much more your know, winged demons. So um, according to the person in that interview, he says they are everything that you imagine at the gates of hell. They're winged, they've got red eyes, Right. they can fly. What was particularly frightening in the case of the boy that um, uh, his father describes, um, you know, shooting, he says that they were looking at him and gesturing. But he later goes on in that interview to say every time they used these goggles, they would see these beings. Sometimes they'd be sitting on the tops of trees. But they seemed to know when you had the goggles on and they would look at you and it put the fear of, well, the fear of whatever into those men because they would start gesturing and flying towards them. And he said you knew that they were after you. Right. Wow. But that is, of course, how your own 
mind would play it as well, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. God, as if you haven't got enough going on in a war zone without this bloody demon and the lizard people creeping up on you. <laughs> demon and the lizard people. <laughs> it's a good name That's for a band. A, it's a good, very good name for a band, yes. <laughs> Echo of the Bunny Men supported by Demon and the Lizard People. But look, die sign in. As far as I can work out, not supernatural. If you want to test it for yourself, it, just don't swallow it, but you can order it. Um, but only if you're a laboratory, I think. But that isn't particularly unusual. These accounts, though, from the war, I think they require further investigation. But I don't believe there's anything to do with this dye. I think it's either something to do with the brain and how it processes stress. Yeah. Or there is another trick going on. And I think perhaps these goggles have more to answer for than Dysionin. But if we just go back to poor old Kilner, he really thought he was onto something and probably mm. didn't deserve to have his reputation ripped apart as it happened because well, he could have just had synesthesia. Yeah, and he could have... I mean, again, I guess there's lots of examples of scientific and medical research that's been found by accident, right? That where people have... Completely correct. Either completely by accident or that's not what they were investigating, but, you know... It's like, I think Viagra's like that, isn't it? Wasn't it being investigated for something else? And then everyone went, oh, this, we can make a fortune. Nobody was coming because back it, after lunch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was a side effect. I guess penicillin to a certain degree yes, as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, the vaccine for smallpox coming from cowpox yeah, and the yeah. milk like maids. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing. So there is there is a lesson there of just not, you know, shooting this guy down because, yeah, he may have come to the wrong conclusions and... And and pushed and got obsessed with the wrong thing. That doesn't mean he wasn't on to something. I, I do wonder... I was thinking while you were talking about the red goggles um, in Vietnam, made me think about... Also on that, that on the thread that we're just talking about, isn't it the same with epilepsy? I remember when... I mean, you'll remember in the 80s, you know, there was those music videos that were just pure strobing oh, for yeah, like yeah, yeah. half an hour. And now you'd never, you know, there'd be a, at least a warning and you'd never be able to do that. So the effect of light and vision and lighting effects on the human brain is is known. So who's to say that that can't be the same with kind of colour combinations and those those goggles that we're having there? I guess it doesn't explain the um, the troops that came across the lizard people in a cave. But hell of no. a narrative, that, isn't it? Coming across that cave, the description of boulders, it, it sounded like a, a lair, didn't it, the, where they lived? I think, I think that is very much the insinuation. Yeah. But as with all of these things, it's very hard to prove that it's not just... Um, a shaggy dog story. But yeah. again, you have to look at who's got something to lose. And Brent Sponsor is a decent journalist. Yeah, yeah. I don't doubt whoever told him the story either believed it um, or experienced it. So who knows? But but I would say the most compelling is that interview. And something obviously did happen in Vietnam. Yeah, some something went on, whether it was a paranormal connection. I guess it doesn't help that... The people on the plane, uh, sorry, in the helicopters, the description. Uh, yeah, exactly. It seems a bit odd that you would have, oh, yeah, well, there's these kind of demonic, almost uh, hell, typical demon-like creatures flying about above Vietnam, but on the ground it's all the lizard people that are all playing. <laughs> Just it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does make me, because I was looking for some 
night vision things to take to um, finally when we go to to look for the werewolf. And now I'm I'm a little worried about buying it. Um, well, I'm a bit worried about it anyway because it's very expensive. But you could buy some, you know, not quite as good as Fleur, but you could get some pretty good stuff. And I thought oh, I definitely want that for werewolf hunting. The the thousand pound price tag put me off, but yeah. this has really put me off to be honest. Well, it might make for a good episode if we've kind of if we've, <laughs> we we wear the goggles, we're hallucinating off our faces. It's like, oh, the werewolf! <laughs> oh God, I don't, I don't want it. I don't want it. Anyway, anyway. Well, that was great, Ben. It's definitely th- food for thought there, or, or visual food for thought at least. I've got something for the Sherlock Tulpa project, which probably means that you're going to have to take on violin duties. Okay. Yeah. You good? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll just get it. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Start your chords. Lovely. You haven't lost it, have you? <laughs> Still did got I it. Have, did I ever have it? Uh, regular listeners who listened to last week's podcast will know we did a whole episode on Tulpamancers and, uh, and the manual for how you might summon your own Tulpa. Again, regular listeners will know we've had a project for the last few months with the idea of thinking about uh, and spending some time working on thinking about Sherlock Holmes with the objective that we might kind of bring him into the real world or create a tulpa of him. We also mentioned last week uh, about Faye, who became our star tulpa mancer, who had the incident where she put quite a lot of work into the project and, you know, been thinking about Sherlock on a regular basis and then spotted him at a, at a kind of pedestrian crossing uh, and then he disappeared and her husband didn't see him at all which kind of ties in with the idea of creating your own tulpa she has come back she has been doing more work since the podcast last week that's dedication amazing yeah she is the star tulpa mancer uh i'll read you what she says first of all she wishes us both happy new year so happy new year to you thank you very well, much though. same to you she said, the latest podcast episode was truly insightful. I've listened to it twice. I think everybody should listen to it twice, shouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, yes, when I look at the numbers, yeah, that would be lovely. Thank you. She said, thank you for mentioning my story. It allowed me to gauge my Sherlock progress. And there is more Sherlock news from me. I'm not sure if this is relevant, but I had a very vivid daydream. Whilst thinking about some future weekend plans, a vivid image of myself sitting opposite Sherlock filled my mind. Felt like, and still feels like, I was in his study with him. Oh, that'd be nice. We talked about location last week, didn't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. He was detached, but not mean or offensive, just standoffish. I can imagine Sherlock being a bit like that. I think he would, yes. He straight got down to confirming details of how he would like to be perceived, specifically his appearance, weirdly, in the 1994 TV series rendition. Wow. Now, interestingly about that, because we've had a debate about Deerstalker or non-Deerstalker, from the images and my memory of the 1994 series, I think there was no Deerstalker action in that. He almost wore more of a kind of top hat and that kind of style. Yeah, that's so, how I remember it. Yeah, so maybe he's upset that we keep talking about the deer stalker. 
Oh yes, maybe yeah, yeah. He's a he's a reactionary tulpa. T- tell Ben and Peter, I want to be seen as the 1994 TV series. It's incredibly specific of him, though. I think this bit gets interesting. He then mentioned our endeavours, Ben, and gave me an object for you both. So this is in the daydream. So he mentions us, says I've got an object for them both. I asked if it was a gift. He said he did not truffle with with thank you sentiments. She says it was, in fact, a clue. That's what Sherlock said. No. So he gave her an object in this daydream and said, this is a clue for Ben and Peter, effectively. Faye says the object was a turquoise cross. And this, this symbolic gesture was for you both. So for me and you. But one would come, so one of us would come to a recognition and a connection about it before the other. She then asked, do you have any idea what this object represents? Now, I responded because I saw this and said, well, it doesn't really mean turquoise kind of cross doesn't really mean anything to me, but maybe it will spend. But it sounds like uh, it may become clear over time to one of us is what is the implication. Turquoise cross. Nothing jumping out for you at the moment? No. That is... This, it's quite specific, but also um, sort of, uh, I don't know, it, it like full of meaning in a way. Yeah, there's got to be something there. I was a bit upset that, hold on, Sherlock is the greatest detective, you know, probably, I know fictional, but the greatest detective out there, at least one of them, and he's setting us a mystery. I mean, I do feel quite proud of that. Yeah, that's quite good. Well, there's more from Faye. Okay. She says, Later that evening, I followed your tips from the podcast, and I spoke to Sherlock, asking for help locating someone. I could feel a presence, but not overwhelmingly so. This is where it gets weird. So she was kind of asking, she felt something, didn't get an answer to her question, but then she says, the TV did independently switch to an episode of Sherlock's TV series from 1994. Oh, no, come on. That's ridiculous. <laughs> How does that feel? Oh, that's amazing. Wow. And, and then okay. she said, after it switched, something in the living room fell down from a shelf. Blimey, she's really manifesting. I, I asked her what it was. She said it was like a guitar tuner thing, fell off a shelf. So we had a big oh, debate oh. whether it was our bad violin playing that maybe <laughs> kind of fit. She said, I've tried thinking, I've tried roping my husband into the project, but he thinks it's madness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I also asked my husband if he really could remember seeing the Sherlock on the pedestrian crossing, and he said he's never seen anything like it. Uh, she says the game is afoot, as it were. The game really is afoot. That's wow. incredible, isn't it? I th- I, it's, um, that, I mean... The way she describes it as well, she said this kind of almost daydream was incredibly vivid and realistic, which, you know, and she's put it in the work with the Tulpa Project. I did say, and I'll say it to anyone who's working, and we did mention it last week, I said, look, if you're enjoying it and you feel comfortable you know, go for it. But if if it starts to feel a bit weird or you're not comfortable, just stop. Just stop, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I don't want that on my conscience, right? Do you? 
Absolutely not. No, no. If it's throwing things off shelves, just be careful. Yeah, just be careful. But um, we're going to have to keep a, an eye out for a turquoise cross and what that could mean. Yeah. I, is it, it's quite I, a random item, isn't it? It's not like, you know, I don't know. It's like, it's not something you come across that often, is it? I don't think I've ever seen a turquoise cross. It's, in my mind, I'm thinking like jewellery or something like that, but... Well, the, the only thing I can think of, and I don't think it's this, is my partner and I are talking about going to St. David's over Easter, which, as you probably know, is the smallest city in the UK. Right. And is right on the coast. We were talking about taking our dog to the coast. So, And it's known as a cathedral city, so you've got the turquoise of the sea and the cross of the cathedral. But I don't know why he would... I think you're stretching I think I, I think that's a stretch. Well, apparently, one of us... It's going to come clear to us at some point, one of us. I hope it's a nice thing. I'm sure it is. I mean, that's why we picked Sherlock. Maybe. Ah, oh, it's my birthday coming up and my partner did say she was going to buy me a jumper. If my jumper's got a turquoise cross on it, <laughs> I literally will lose my mind. That would be quite... I will lose my mind. That would be quite random. Um, but, yeah, Faye, thanks for sharing that. And like we said, if it's feeling a bit weird, just stop. Um... But sounds <laughs> that's what I say to my wife. Anyway, <laughs> but it sounds like you know. Again, it's like what we, it's like what we said last week. It, the people who are putting in the effort seem to be getting a result. I've not had any time this week to think Sherlock, but uh, I, I, I'm going to try and follow the manual that we talked about last week. If all, if none of this is making sense in terms of the manual, we found an online guide in how to create a tulpa and we talked about it in detail in last week's episode so uh, called tulpa Mancers. so uh if you want to go and check that out to get more detail then do but yeah she's faye is keeping us on our toes with her her execution of the project i'm feeling a bit guilty i've not done more right, i'm gonna have the film on a film on uh, a sherlock film on the sunday so i've got some work to do. i'll have that on in the background and I like the fact that uh, inadvertently I've got some homework to do now on um, on that symbolism. So yes, we should look look that up. And of course, Faye is part of our lovely little community that is ever growing on our Patreons, patreon.com forward slash TQMpod. If you would like to come and join us there, we'd be very, very grateful. Um, this... Uh, it drains our resources, but in a very good way. So if anything you could put back in the pot would be really useful, and yep. we thank you for it. But uh, the main thing is, please give us a listen and enjoy what we're doing. Excellent. And, uh, yes, we'll be back next week with a new episode. I'm working on something, hopefully finished for next week. It does come at things from a, a more sceptical point of view, but it's it's an interesting cautionary tale. So that's my little teaser for next week. <sighs> If I tell you what, if we, if anything, here's a promise. One of us will, if we can't both do it. If anything happens that is turquoise cross related, we'll do an emergency episode midweek. Yeah, we'll do a little livey thing. We will. Yeah, cool. Uh, yeah, yeah, but it has to be obvious. I can't just. Yeah. If, but if it's my jumper, <laughs> not I li- swear we'll do it. Not like. Oh, I'm going to a cathedral city and I can see the sea. <laughs> you say cathedral city, I say cheese. Uh, no, if, if, if Rachel does give me a jumper with a blue cross on it, and she can't know because uh, sh- this episode won't go out before she's bought it, 
so it, I know where it is. It's sitting upstairs. So unless she changes it secretly, <laughs> oh. Oh, okay, I'm excited. Right. <laughs> it's like I've got this vision of you turning up for next week's podcasting podcast looking like Prince. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's changed. My name is Prince and I am funky. <laughs> I'm not really funky. On that note, we should probably uh, say goodbye. We'll say goodbye and see you either in a week or in a few days if something happens. Cool, we'll see you then. Take care, goodbye. Bye. the quantum mechanics.